Good afternoon and welcome to the 187th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of Native Americans in the pandemic with journalist Shandine Silversmith. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 14th, 2020, there are 1,617,498 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 16,308,153 cases reported in the United States. There are now a total of 299,737 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 293,633 reported on Friday. We're going to change up the order just slightly today and bring the guest out first. And I want to introduce my guest today. Really, really excited to speak with her. Shandine Silversmith is a Diné journalist working as the Indigenous Affairs Reporter for the Arizona Republic, which is part of the USA Today Network. She has a master's degree in journalism from Northeastern University in Boston, with nearly 10 years of journalism experience, mostly covering Indigenous communities. She previously worked for the Navajo Times and has held various internships over the years, including PRI's The World and The Ground Truth Project. Shandine, thank you so much for making time, which I know is on a busy news day for you and joining me on COVID calls. Thank you for having me. I like to start the way I usually do, just to ask where you're calling from and what the pandemic looks like there today. Of course, I'm actually at my father's place in Gallup, New Mexico. It is a border town to the Navajo Nation, and it also serves as a service unit for the Indian Health Center for the Indian Health Services. So a lot of Navajo people utilize their health services here in this community. So in terms of the number of case, number of new cases they have reported within the last seven days, there have been 277 new positive coronavirus cases, but the total cases from this service unit in Gallup has been 3,242 cases. Oh, this is a, a very busy day. I know you're on deadline um, around the vaccine and the availability of the vaccine to the Navajo Nation. Tell us what you're reporting on. Yes. So the Navajo Nation is expecting the first shipment of the COVID-19 vaccine this week. They should be getting their first doses today with plans to administer their first doses to healthcare workers by Tuesday. So according to the chief medical officer for the Navajo area Indian Health Service, the Navajo Nation is expecting to receive 3,900 doses of the vaccine today and tomorrow. So, and then they're gonna kind of trickle that down where they're going to 
first distribute it to service areas that have the capability of storing the vaccine because the, the Pfizer vaccine requires freezing temperatures. So you have to have the equipment to be able to store that. So some of the first facilities that they're going to be distributing to will be the Gallup Indian Medical Center here in Gallup, New Mexico. But then they're going to start on December 15th to send a next shipment to the Northern Medical Center in Shiprock, New Mexico, and then to the healthcare facility in Chinle, Arizona. So the process of determining who gets access first, it seems to be that healthcare providers are being prioritized. And, and I'm assuming that's the case there. What's been the process of determining that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, according to officials that the, the vaccine will be administered based on the CDC's phage distribution plan that has been outlined. So healthcare workers and those living in long-term assisted living facilities will be some of the first to be vaccinated. And it's all on a volunteer basis. So uh, I mentioned I mentioned earlier that the chief medical officer, she's the one, her name is Dr. Loretta Christensen. And she has been the one kind of guiding people what to expect in terms of when the vaccine hits the Navajo Nation. So when she spoke at a, a virtual town hall meeting last week with the Navajo Nation president, she talked about how these vaccines will cover healthcare workers, emergency medical staff, traditional practitioners working within Indian Health Services facilities, and the staff and patients in long-term nursing facilities. She said that's how they plan to distribute the first phase of these vaccinations on the Navajo Nation. So earlier in the year, you wrote a really insightful piece about the issue of vaccine trials in the Navajo Nation. And I, I learned a lot in reading that article because it raised um, some really important issues um, around trust, around health inequality, I and mean, also just the importance of having a really broad um, you know, slice of the population across the United States, including minority communities, in the formation of the vaccines. I wonder if you could sort of summarize some of the key things in that piece, because I thought it was a really interesting insight. And it seems in COVID time, it seems like it was 10 years ago now, but it was only that piece was only a few months ago. <laughs> yeah. So the Navajo Nation announced earlier this year, not even earlier this year, it was in September. They announced their participation in the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccination clinical trials and enrollment within those trials began in late September. In fact, an update about those trials was given last week by Laura Hammett. She's the director of the infectious disease programs at the John Hopkins Center of American Indian Health. They were the center that was leading these trials. They're the ones that got approved from the Navajo Nation Human Review Board to host these trials on the Navajo Nation. So she was the one leading this effort. And she gave an update on, on the trials this past Friday. And she said that 163 Navajo people volunteered to participate in the trial, but it also, it also included 58 White Mountain Apache tribal citizens from the White Mountain Apache nation in um, northern Arizona. So they had participation and she said overall 
there were about 463 Native American participants in the Pfizer COVID vaccine clinical trials overall. And one of the one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that she said through through these trials, what they have learned is that two doses from the vaccine have been found 95% effective in preventing COVID-19. And she said, I quote, this is really remarkable. Mm. So when in terms of asking what kind of side effects people experienced during the trials, or if there were any long-term effects since, or, or things, you know, just concerning things like that, she said, that side effects that people experienced were, were generally mild from the clinical triers, trials. She said the most common side effect was pain from where the shot was given, or people experienced tiredness, muscle aches and headaches, but all of those generally went away in the couple of days following their reporting. And so it, it was interesting to hear from her just how how many Navajo people not only participated in the trials, but also mm -hmm. just the the amount of information they were gathered just in that short time period. Because when they uh, when they first announced participation in the trials, they said that participants had to never have had COVID before, had to be at least over 18 years old. And she said, she did mention in her update last week that they did have participants that did have some underlying health conditions. She said, which was really good because as part of trials, you wanna be able to see how the vaccine impacts not only healthy people, but people who have those underlying conditions. But you, you mentioned earlier how uh, people might have had like a distrust for the vaccine trials and stuff like that. And I thought I thought that was really interesting because that was one of my questions as well. And one of the biggest things that I think in the beginning that the Navajo Nation wanted to do was to just be able to educate people what the vaccine actually was and what these trials meant. And they were only offering uh, these trials at certain locations on the Navajo Nation. I think it was, give me a second, let me look at my notes. There were, I think, three three locations they were offering these clinical trials at, and that was the Chinle Health Facility, the Gallup Indian Medical Center, as well as the Shiprock Facility, the Northern Medical Center there. So they, they did have them, and they had over 160 people volunteer. Yeah, this has been for public health officials and communicators this year has been beyond a challenge that they would ever would have imagined. And on the vaccine issue, the two different issues. One is, of course, the race to get the vaccine. Um, so to tamp down anxiety that people have waiting for it, that's one mm -hmm. part. But then, of course, the, the very real and in some cases quite politically powerful anti-vaccination movement in the United States I, I don't know. I, I, can you tell me a little bit about in the Navajo Nation, is anti-vaccination sentiment something that you have encountered, and particularly in this case around COVID-19? I don't think I, I don't think I've encountered it. At least uh, nobody has like emailed me or directly 
responded to any of my stories in that in that manner. But when you when you go onto social media and you start looking in different Facebook groups that are related to the Navajo Nation, or you even just look at the comments from when the Navajo Nation president has their virtual town hall meetings, you can kind of see the concerns of the Navajo people in those areas. You can see them asking like, what this vaccination is, is it trustworthy? What can we expect? You know, just common questions about what it is. And I think, I think in terms of a historical perspective, um, indigenous people have not, have always not been very trusting of the federal government. Yeah. So, and rightfully so. So I think, I think in general, uh, native people are just really cautious when it comes to things like that. I'm glad you raised that, that issue about this sort of longstanding, you know, the history is there. And, and of course, this has been a year of, um, I think for many people learning some unpleasant things about American history that maybe they had never been taught or maybe they had forgotten uh, or they wish had never happened. And this is true for minority communities across America. I wonder if you wanted to speak to that a little bit, the kind of the politics of COVID-19 there in the Navajo Nation. You were just talking about it a little bit there. The way people have perceived the threat, particularly at a, at a, a time um, earlier in the year in which the Navajo Nation led the, the country in infection mm -hmm. rates. That's a really scary time, and it's hard to sort of disentangle that from, as you said, the sort of longer flow of American history and distrust. Yeah. So I, I, I wrote a story back in March when the, the pandemic was really starting to pick up pace, I guess you could say. And that's when the Navajo Nation started reporting their numbers for the first time. And one of the first positive COVID-19 cases on the Navajo Nation was announced on March 17th. And the Navajo Nation Department of Health reported it as a 46-year-old individual from a community called Chilchimbito, Arizona. So I thought it was really interesting because the Navajo Nation had such an early response in terms of the coronavirus because they sent out their first well, I don't, the Navajo Nation president sent out his first, I guess, advisory and warnings about the coronavirus in as early as December and January to his people. And that's even, that's earlier than most people, than most political officials in the United States. And then as soon as the first positive case hit, the Navajo Nation started taking the steps to protect their community, to make sure they isolate this incident. They were trying to make sure that the virus didn't come onto the Navajo Nation. But one of the interesting things that Jonathan Nez said, the Navajo Nation president, is that we tried to keep this virus off our nation, but it snuck in. Mm. So that's how it happened. So, and when it did finally hit the Navajo Nation, it kind of, it was like a snowball effect. You saw the Navajo Nation Department of Health and all of these command centers activate what they've been preparing for. And I, I think one of the, 
the interesting things is that early in the year, a lot of indigenous communities didn't even have their federal funding support yet. They didn't have their CARES Act funding. They didn't have that support to address this pandemic within their own communities. And the Navajo Nation was is one of the is the largest reservation in the United States. <laughs> it's equivalent to the size of West Virginia and has a population of about a hundred of over 170,000 people. So when you are dealing with not only a large population, but a large landmass, you need equipment. You need the resources to be able to do that. But they didn't get that resources right when this pandemic started. They didn't get their CARES Act funding until later than most people did. So I think what was really interesting is um, the Navajo Nation declared their state of emergency on March 11th, that they were the first tribe in Arizona to do that. And it was two days ahead of the White House's national emergency declaration. Mm -hmm. So they had an early response, but they didn't have any federal support in how they were dealing with this at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, so, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So I thought, eh, I think it's really interesting because uh, that's how a lot of indigenous communities have dealt with this pandemic. They, they, because they are sovereign nations, you have tribal leaders making decisions that will be best for their own people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like the Navajo Nation uh, shut down and they're in the middle of a lockdown right now. The Navajo Nation is in the middle of a three-week lockdown because we have had this second wave of positive coronavirus cases hit us so hard after Labor Day. So now the all of these tribal leaders and all of these medical officials are trying to make these decisions that will best benefit the people on the Navajo Nation and a lot of tribal leaders are doing the same thing and they're making these decisions just to protect their communities. This is a quite remarkable situation you're describing here where the leadership in the Navajo Nation is moving faster, certainly faster than the state of Arizona and mm -hmm. I believe faster than New Mexico and Utah as well and but doing so without the full support of the federal government, even moving faster than the federal government and without the resources. Mm -hmm. um, but the care, I mean, the the will to take care of the population is um, it's being expressed faster than almost anywhere else in the country. Um, what was the reaction to that? Did that cause some political frictions with neighboring states? I'm sort of curious about that problem. I, I don't think it caused any friction in terms of neighboring states, but I do, I do believe that it finally highlighted the fact that Native communities, Indigenous communities like the Navajo Nation or the Zuni tribe or the Hopi tribe or any of the 22 federally recognized tribes in Arizona are sovereign nations. If the state of Arizona or the state of New or or any state that these federally recognized tribes sit in aren't going to make the proper 
guidelines or mandates that will protect their people, they're going to do it themselves because it's their responsibility. And I feel that these indigenous communities with the best of their capability did that. They put these regulations and guidelines within their own communities to protect their own people. And they're still doing it. Once the virus got into the Navajo Nation, then it, it really was a rough situation there. I wonder if you could talk from your perspective a little bit about those, those hardest days and, and why you think the impact was so great. So you mentioned earlier that the, the Navajo Nation did have one of the highest infection rates per capita. And, and that's been reported on across the country. And it trickled down during the summer that there was even one day that there were no zero, there were zero positive cases reported for a day. So, and that, and that was good. But then when you look at the data now and the, you have these health officials talking and you have the Navajo Nation president talking, we're in the middle of a second wave and it's, larger than the last one. <laughs> and you can see it in in the data that is being released every day. So the Navajo Nation President's Office releases numbers every single night in terms of the positive cases across the Navajo Nation, how many positive cases there have been in that day, and then how many deaths there are, how many recoveries. And that's reported every single day. And the Navajo Nation Department of Health has a data dashboard on their website that showed that kind of breaks down where they're getting all of this information and exactly how many numbers are impacting the different parts of the Navajo Nation. So when when you look at that, when you look at that number and you kind of see the graph that they have mapped out and you see the curves of it you can see how much larger this second wave is because I'll, let me show let me give you an example hold on let me find it mm -hmm. so the in back in back in the spring so the highest number of positive cases in a day this past spring that was reported was in May, and that was for 238 cases. But in recent weeks, the highest number reported in a single day for positive COVID-19 cases was 398 on November 21st. So there is this second wave hitting the Navajo Nation really hard right now, and that's why we're in a three-week lockdown again. Mm -hmm. That stay-at-home order is in place where nobody can, nobody should be leaving. They they have to stay at home unless they're going to get essential items. Businesses are only open Monday through Friday. 
The Navajo Nation, is, Navajo Nation is on a 57 hour lockdown every single weekend, starting at 8 p.m. on Friday to 6 a.m. on Monday. So those are some, some of the, the regulations that the Navajo Nation has set in place in hopes of getting these positive cases under control. You wrote an article about the uh, possibility of using isolation um, yes. Sort of isolation. Um, I don't even know the correct term. They're like little they're houses. It's like an isolation center. Can you say a little bit about that? Yes. Hold on really quick. Let me pull that up. I was just looking at it. Because that speaks to some of the, maybe some of the um, issues in terms of how people live there that might be, yeah. have some bearing on the infection rate. I think one of the I think one of the biggest things that a lot of people don't understand about life on the Navajo Nation is that just because we have a wide landmass and we have all of this space doesn't mean that all of us are living separately. <laughs> we have multi-generational homes. You have families who kind of have one house here, another house there, and another house there, but they're all living within the same area. And then you have multiple living, multiple people living under one household. And that makes it harder for people to isolate themselves if they do test positive, because then you have all of multiple people living under one household, either sharing one bathroom or sharing one room and stuff like that. So th those are the things that people have to take into consideration when it comes to why there may be so many cases happening at such a such a big rate. So one of the interesting things is that the Navajo Nation is offering what they're calling, what are they calling it? Um, alternative care sites. So they're kind of, there are there is a isolation site set up at the Chinle Community Center in Chinle, Arizona, where people can voluntarily go if they test positive for COVID-19 to isolate themselves until they get better. And then there's isolation hotel sites set up where people are people go to do the same thing because they might not be able to isolate themselves at home. They might be living with other people who are at higher risk than them. And rather than going home exposing them, they're like, well, I don't want to do that. We, you can go to one of these isolation sites. Mm -hmm. It's all voluntary based, but it's also, they have to be referred to these sites by a, a doctor in order for them to be utilized. So oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I it, it was really interesting. And one of the things that the director of the Navajo Nation Department of Health, her name is Dr. Jill Jim. One of there was an when this update came out, she was talking about how they wanted to be able to make safe isolation sites available because bed capacity concerns are running out on the Navajo Nation. Right. ICO, ICO, ICU capacities are increasing, and they just and this was their best option because they wanted to do everything they can to to protect the Navajo people, healthcare workers, high-risk families and elders. And so it was, this is one of their options and one of their ways of doing that. 
Shandine, I want to ask you, I mean, you were really describing in great detail earlier this issue earlier on in the pandemic um, when the Navajo Nation leadership was taking more aggressive action um, than the rest of the country, as far as I can tell. Um, I wonder if we could talk about the the kind of other side of that coin, which is the stigma um, that Navajo may have felt when they later in the pandemic, when in this moment you're describing when the infection rates were so high because people, you know, who live in, in the Navajo Nation, they travel outside of the boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. I was one out because I've read a few stories about some some issues around that. Stigma yeah. attempts to segregate and, and you know, I mean these are maybe to a certain extent long standing issues that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Yeah. So in terms of the amount of people who live on the Navajo Nation, there are over 170,000 people who live on the Navajo Nation. But in terms of how many Navajo people there are, there are over 300,000 Navajo people. And so more than half of that lives off the Navajo Nation. And many of them live in bordering communities like border towns like Gallup, Farmington, Holbrook, Winslow, just those larger towns that are close to the Navajo Nation that allows them access to still go home to the Navajo Nation if they need it, but provides them the necessities they need. So when we were talking earlier, I mentioned how that the Navajo Nation has a very limited number of grocery stores. I believe there are 13 total across the entire Navajo Nation. So you have people traveling far distances to be able to go to those grocery stores, but still not getting all of the essential items that they need. So they're gonna travel off the Navajo Nation to do that. They're gonna go to one of these bordering towns that has a Walmart or that has a Safeway or that has these essential places that give them the resources they need to be able to live, you know, it's just, it's just basic life. You need to be able to visit these different types of stores to be able to live comfortably. So you do have a, a lot of Navajo people traveling off the Navajo Nation to get the items they need. So I haven't personally as a reporter gotten the chance to kind of dig into how these border towns or these bordering communities have treated the Navajo people since COVID has started but social media is there and you do see people talking about the stigmas that have risen because of the coronavirus. You, have, you see people posting about how they're being treated differently in these communities because the Navajo Nation does have a high infection rate. And you see comments of how the Navajo people are bringing this virus to this community because they're coming here. And, and, and that's ridiculous and flat out racist. So, so it's, just, it's just baffling to me because I, I grew up on the Navajo Nation. I know what it's like having to go to these bordering communities to have to get these essential items. If I could just go to Winter Rock and do it, that would be great because that's only an hour from where I live rather than traveling two hours to either Gallup or Flagstaff to get these items, mm -hmm. you know? So you, <laughs> and, and I think it's kind of ridiculous when 
that stigma did come out because when, for, for instance, Gallup did lock down. There was, I think, a few weekends where it just completely locked down and didn't allow anybody that wasn't a resident of Gallup into the city. And then my dad lives in Gallup and I'm one of his caregivers, so I have to come and visit him frequently. So when I came during that time to check on him, there's nobody traveling in the city. All of the businesses were closed. There was nobody on the streets, nothing. But as soon as it opened up and Navajo people were allowed back in, everything was running fine. Hmm. So you like you can these communities and these border towns rely on money from the Navajo people because like I said, rather than committing to only drive an hour to get half of the things I need for my home, I might as well make a whole day of it and travel two hours to get everything I need. Hmm. So that's, that's the reality of it. I wanted to also ask you, um, we're almost up on, on time for our visit, but I wanted to also ask you about um, the way that maybe some traditional practices of, uh, you know, medicine have been employed and just the way, you know, people have dealt with uh, grieving with, you know, funeral, you talked about multi-generation families living close by. And this is not an issue just for the Navajo, of course, you know, cultural differences in the way that, you know, people have tried to cope with the virus that they brought, you know, in some cases, more traditional medicine to bear and the way they brought their own cultural practices to grieving and mm -hmm. funeral is really important right now, I think, as a way for people to, frankly, to survive and to cope. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about that from your perspective? So, uh, I, like you said, in a lot, a lot of families who are grieving a death often have larger gatherings to kind of celebrate that person's life. That's no different on the Navajo Nation. One of the biggest things is that our, our community and our families usually interact through food. Like if you have a guest, you automatically offer them something to eat. Or if you have a gathering, it's usually around food. Or if you're hosting a traditional practice or a ceremonial practice, there's often food offered afterwards. But those types of things aren't happening right now because of the coronavirus. I know a lot of traditional practices are very, are probably limited to just the patient and the traditional practitioner <laughs> rather than it being a family affair, which it usually is because of that risk of exposure, because you don't want to gather more than 10 people in your home, especially people who aren't your immediate family or live within the same household, because the coronavirus is so contagious that you have that risk factor. And I think it, it can, and the same thing can be said in terms of like hosting funerals or burial services for your family and you, especially if they're if they are passing away from the coronavirus and you're having to limit just the amount of people who get to actually be there and say goodbye to them and see them actually buried. I think that's, it's not, it's just hard for, for anybody having to deal with that right now. 
Let me get one last question in for Shandine Silversmith, and this is really just about you and, and what it's been like to be a reporter this year. This has been a hard year for everybody, but I think particularly for journalists who are channeling so many stories of people who've been suffering. Can you say a little bit about what this year's been like for you? This year has been, it's been really exhausting. Um, not only in like the professional manner where, like you said, journalists are getting burnt out because not only did the pandemic hit this year, but it was also an election year. So you have, you have journalists who have just been running in overdrive since this entire thing started. And it's been, it's been exhausting, but also like it's been exhausting for me in my personal life as well, because my family, I moved back to the Navajo Nation in April to take care of my family. I was living in Phoenix, but I made it a priority to move back to the Navajo Nation to take care of my parents because they needed my help. So that was a big adjustment, not only for me, but for my family. And it's just, it's been an exhausting year. <laughs> and um, I'm hoping that things do get better, not only in terms of the pandemic, but just overall, I feel that everybody wants things to start getting better. So hopefully they will be. <laughs> yeah, I share that with you. Thanks for the reporting you're doing. It's just tremendous, and people can follow Shandine Silversmith's uh, reporting in the Arizona Republic. Um, it's just essential reading, I think, for this time. So um, I know it's been an exhausting year, but you're also making a difference. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. It is, I, I've committed my journalistic career to reporting on Indigenous communities, especially my own. So I'm happy to be a part of it, but also these are their stories. <laughs> I'm just lucky enough to tell them. Well, Shandine Silversmith is the Indigenous Affairs reporter for the Arizona Republic, and I know she's on deadline and has to cover this vaccine rollout uh, story there. So we'll let you go, Shandine, and please keep in contact. Thanks for joining yes. me on COVID Calls. Thank you. Yeah, have a good one. So what I'd like to do now is um, turn to reading obituary and a story about uh, the experience of COVID-19 on the Navajo Nation. Really great conversation there with Shandine Silversmith. So let me turn to that as a way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I try to read a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'm going to do one of each today. Let me read this first. Headline is, wife of Oklahoma's first fatal case speaks. By the time we knew it was COVID-19, his lungs were already compromised to the point of no return. This was written by Andrea Eger and published April 12th in Tulsa World. There was additional reporting relevant to this story as well, which appeared in the Cherokee Phoenix on March 19th. 
When Carrie Dry speaks of the virus that took her 55-year-old husband's life only three days after he first exhibited symptoms, she doesn't use medical or scientific terms. She calls it this monster. Berry Hill resident Merle Dry made headlines as Oklahoma's first recorded coronavirus-related fatality after his death on March 18th. According to a Facebook post by his church, Dry was, quote, in good health. As far as we all knew, he was fighting a cold and then he contracted the coronavirus. He was diagnosed and passed away. He was age 55 and Cherokee, unquote. Dry was named the first, uh, named as Oklahoma's first COVID-19 related death by two reporters on their respective Facebook pages. The Cherokee Phoenix confirmed that Dry was a Cherokee Nation citizen. In her first interview, Carrie Dry described the shock of learning that the COVID-19 pandemic had arrived in Oklahoma and how quickly it turned lethal for her husband, whose general health had been good before she rushed him to the hospital on Sunday, March 15th. This was not anywhere on our radar except via national news, which grew more and more grim as days passed, she said. His symptoms, they were identical to the flu. Sunday evening, he ran a fever and was fatigued when he began having difficulty breathing. I took him to the emergency room. She has described what came next as a fierce three-day battle. That Monday saw Merle's condition deteriorate so rapidly that he was transferred to an intensive care unit. Carrie, who had been keeping watch over her husband, was asked to leave as the hospital put in place new restrictions on visitors. My last image of him was shortly before I left, she said. He was in a full face oxygen mask and was struggling to breathe. I held his hand, prayed with him, and told him I loved him. I never saw him alive again. It wasn't until that Tuesday evening that Carrie and her two children, one a young adult, the other about to graduate from high school, received word that Merle had tested positive for COVID-19. That meant the three of them, plus Carrie's mother, were immediately placed in quarantine but there was no safeguarding Merle. By the time we knew it was COVID-19, his lungs were already compromised to the point of no return, Kerry said. On that Wednesday evening, just before 8 p.m., Merle died in the hospital. The doctor assured me it was peaceful and he did not suffer, his wife said. Funeral arrangements were complicated by the family quarantine. The day after their mandatory isolation ended, the Dry family was finally able to say goodbye in a private viewing. And on April 1st, two full weeks after Merle's death, he was buried in Haskell, where he grew up. At the end of his life, Merle worked on an award-winning grounds crew at Oral Roberts University. But much of his obituary focused not on his job, but on a different kind of work that defined the man, the Lord's work. Carrie explained that her husband's devotion to ministering to others to children for many years, and most recently in outreach to new Hispanic members of their Pentecostal church in Tulsa, stemmed from the help he received in turning his life around as a young man. Merle felt a calling on his life to become a minister in the mid-1980s. Before that time, he had not always been inclined toward living a godly life, Kerry said. When his life spiraled out of control, he made his way to the United Pentecostal Church in Haskell, pastored at that time by the Reverend Lloyd Carr. Merle trained with veteran ministers for years, progressing from local licensing to general licensing to ordination as a minister himself in the United Pentecostal Church International in March of 2015. Carrie Dry said her husband recently completed a four-year college course in Christian ministry 
through the Purpose Institute and was set to graduate this summer. Beyond her pride in her husband's and her husband of almost 29 years, she shared her love of Merle's love of laughter. And when she describes her husband's trademark sense of humor as corny but clean, she's not kidding. His favorite jokes to tell and retell were ones he memorized from Laffy Taffy candy wrappers. Anyone and everyone was subject to his good-natured and gentle teasing and cutting up. He could make people laugh at themselves without ever making them feel as though he was laughing at them, Carrie said. Seldom was anyone around him for long without smiling themselves. His humor is one of the things I will miss most. Asked whether Merle had any underlying conditions or illnesses that could have masked early warning signs, Carey said he did have somewhat of a family history of respiratory issues and had been hospitalized once three years ago with pneumonia himself, but generally he was in good health. But she said she sees no point in trying to figure out how Merle contracted this new infectious agent spreading across the globe. We have no idea where he came in contact with the monster. And truth be known, neither does anyone else who has had it and died or had it and survived, she said. Anyone who blames someone else for contracting this virus without absolute documented medical proof is cruel and thoughtless, she said. Just a few days after Merle died, Carrie somehow summoned the strength to record a special video message for the church congregation where she grew up. She warned fellow members of Metro Pentecostal Church that this virus is a killer and urged them to comply with stay-at-home orders. Over the last 51 years, they have become as much family as my own flesh and blood, she said. I needed to let them know we were going to be okay and that our deep faith in the Lord's grace and love would sustain us even through this traumatic loss we had just experienced. My husband and I were married in 1991, and he became a member of Metro Pentecostal at that point. So for 29 years, these people were his family also. They lost a friend, a teacher, a leader, an active church board member. Now she's sharing her story with a wider audience in hopes that many more people will heed the warning signs of COVID-19 and follow measures in place to try to spare others the fate that Merle and his survivors have suffered. I would say to anyone who sees the symptoms of flu, watch closely. If they worsen, call your doctor or go to the hospital, she said before adding, quarantine and shelter in place orders are not simply a good idea. They can save lives. I'd like to read one more article today, today's COVID calls. The headline is COVID-19 impacts every corner of the Navajo Nation. Frontline workers confront the world's newest deadly malady. This appeared May 19th in High Country News and was written by Kaylin Goodluck. Lucinda Charleston's children reminded her that she wasn't young anymore, but despite their worry, she assembled an emergency public health team to tackle the Navajo Nation's first coronavirus outbreak. The pandemic hit Chilchinbeto, a small town in the northeastern corner of Arizona in mid-March. As deputy commander for the Navajo Nation Incident Command Center, Charleston was tasked with delivering aid, isolating the community, and tracking the sick and vulnerable. During these weeks, Charleston Denae had one recurring thought. I'm not the only person that has family, everybody on my team, we all have families that we need to go home to. 
The novel coronavirus has ravaged much of the world, yet its impact has been particularly acute on the Navajo Nation, where it is pushing the tribe's public health system to its limits. Decades of negligence and billions of dollars in unmet need from the federal government have left tribal nations without basic infrastructure, like running water and sewage systems, along with sparse internet access and an underfunded Indian health service. All this compounds the life-threatening danger the coronavirus poses to the elderly and immunocompromised. Frontline workers endure shortages of protective equipment like masks and gloves to help communities with already dire health disparities, including high rates of chronic illness and lower life expectancy. In response, relief efforts have sprouted to gather and deliver food, water, cleaning supplies, and other goods, all jobs the federal government is treaty obligated to do. Chilchen Beto's chapter house, church, school, and its over 400 housing units are nestled beside a modest mesa. Charleston and her team drove through town, making an initial field assessment for their difficult mission, delivering aid and isolating the community. For the next three weeks, the team would live in the hospital in Cayenta, just over 20 miles north of the unfolding outbreak. Charleston found refuge in room 118, away from her family, emerging each day to face the virus. Yes, we were afraid, but there are some people who run away from fire and some who run towards fire. Charleston told the reporter in mid-April. As is true elsewhere, health officials as is true elsewhere, health officials suspect the outbreak was amplified by a superspreader event, a rally hosted by the Evangelical Church of Nazarene in Chilchen Bedo and attended by people from all over the Navajo Nation. From Singapore to the United States, churches have been linked to outbreaks of COVID-19. In France, a five-day church event exploded into around 2,500 cases. In April, the Pew Research Center found that stay-at-home directives in 15 states had religious exemptions. Six of them were Western states, including Arizona. Charleston faced a daunting task. She wasn't familiar with Chilchen Beto, and yet she had to reach as many people as possible as soon as possible, keep them in isolation, and deliver aid, all without knocking on doors. She and her team decided the safest method was to call each household and have a member pick up food and supplies at the chapter house, one at a time, maintaining a zero-contact policy. The town's officials and community health representatives, or CHRs, would prove invaluable. The more than 140 CHRs monitor the health of community members and visit and assess the elderly, many of whom speak only Navajo, delivering medication and making hospital referrals. Many of their clients have chronic illnesses. There are some anxieties within them because they don't have all of the necessary personal protection equipment, but they know that they have to get out and into the community, May Jeline Begay, the tribe's CHR program director said. I have some CHRs that had to go out into self-quarantine for a week, but they got called back, so they returned to work. Because of the coronavirus, home visits have become impossible and long hours are inevitable. Shortly after the church rally, but before the outbreak was apparent, Begay went to a Navajo chapter meeting in Chilchen Beto. She was lucky, she said. She kept her distance, didn't shake hands. Less than a week later, one COVID-19 case had become 26, and it wasn't long before people were dying. Today, the disease has impacted every corner of the Navajo Nation. According to CNN, as of May 18, the tribe's infection rate had surpassed that of New York and New Jersey, previously known as the U.S. epicenter of the pandemic. 
On May 17th, Navajo Nation Department of Health documented 4,002 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 140 deaths. And as we were just hearing from Shandine Silversmith, this was the first wave in the Navajo Nation. They're now facing a much deadlier second wave. Returning to the article, owing to the shortage of hospitals, respirators, and trauma care, it can be difficult to find out where loved ones are receiving treatment. One of Begay's relatives went to the Nazarene church rally and returned home to Hard Rock, died from COVID-19. Right now, I have an aunt and uncle that are in the hospital, Begay said back in mid-April. They flew out my aunt two days ago, and we don't know which hospital she's at, and we don't know how she's doing, but we were able to find out where my uncle is. Larissa Martin, who's worked as a CHR for six years, worries that people are falling through the cracks and not getting the care and support they need. We know who our elders are, especially those who don't have family support or limited support, those who have fixed income, Martin said. Many of the families and elderly that she oversees on the east side of the reservation in Chichilta and Bahali lack internet access, telephones, and adequate cleaning supplies as well as coal for heat or even enough food and water. I wish we'd be able to provide transportation, Begay told me. We do realize there's a lot of urgent transportation need, but we don't have the proper PPE. We're very short on cleaning supplies, and we don't have enough masks and gloves to clean the vehicles. While tribes waited nearly six weeks for a limited 60% distribution of the CARES Act, $8 billion relief package, online fundraising campaigns sprang up around Indian country to address immediate needs back in the spring. The Navajo and Hopi Families COVID-19 Relief Fund, created by former Navajo Nation Attorney General Ethel Branch in mid-March, raised over $3.8 million, about $10,000 per community. The CHRs deliver the goods. It seems like a lot of money, but it's really not, Cassandra Begay, a spokesperson said for the fund in mid-April. We already had a first round of food deliveries, but they're going to be hungry again in a week or two. U.S. Senator Tom Udall, Democrat from New Mexico, called the federal relief package too little, too late, and demanded full release of funds to tribes in May. For decades, tribes, advocates, and a handful of lawmakers have been calling attention to the drastic underfunding of the Indian Health Service and Indian country's lack of infrastructure. In 2003 and in 2018, the United States Civil Rights Commission found that tribal infrastructure was chronically underfunded by billions of dollars. Since virus prevention requires access to information, electricity, running water, cleaning supplies, food, and medical care, many Navajos are already at a disadvantage. Charleston and her team employed public health and health care providers to learn who was sick or being treated for COVID-19 at the Kayenta Health Center keeping everyone safely isolated. She had to establish communications between Indian Health Service medical staff and the Navajo Nation's incident command team, sharing COVID-19 information while maintaining patient, shared COVID-19 information while maintaining patient confidentiality in order to track medical conditions. They came up with ingenious solutions, repurposing raincoats for PPE, for example. They scoured the reservation in search of janitorial supplies for the constant sanitation required, but the lack of infrastructure just made everything even more overwhelming. Charleston returned home in April, three weeks after deploying with her whole team safe. The Navajo Nation is currently facing scores of new coronaviruses a day, coronavirus cases a day, but Charleston has not lost hope. 
We can outlive this virus, she said, but we have to look at each step to be more creative. I want to thank everybody for joining me on COVID calls today, and I want to thank my guest, Shandine Silversmith in the Arizona Republic, who's the Indigenous Affairs reporter, and please keep up with her reporting, giving us insight into the way that coronavirus has impacted the Navajo Nation. Tomorrow on COVID calls, I'll be talking with Erica Earle, a reporter from Stars and Stripes, and we'll be talking about COVID-19 in the United States military. Stay healthy, everyone. You can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. See you tomorrow.